Andy, when you say like a Dave Clark threat, in other words, using it for influence, like I'm sure Jason, within your company, if I want to get something done, whether or not- Just drop my name, Todd. Just drop my name. It's done. This this is a Jason voice This is a Jason voice initiative. (laughs) Priority one. All right. Thank you. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly right. I hope my employees aren't listening. That strikes the fear of God in me. Coming up on day two, GeekWire's podcast about everything Amazon. Wait, wasn't Amazon's union battle over? Well, not quite, it turns out. And in fact, a mailbox could be working against the company. Plus the end of Prime Now as we know it, and a follow-up on our recent conversation about Amazon's crackdown on fake reviews. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Joining me is our podcast collaborator, Jason Boyce, co-author of The Amazon Jungle and founder and CEO of Avenue 7 Media, an agency that works with third-party retailers on Amazon. Hi, Jason. Hey, Todd. I'm really excited to talk to Annie. She's uh, one of the folks that I follow on Twitter and everywhere else and is always in the know when it comes to Amazon. So really excited about today's podcast. And Annie, by the way, so folks know, is Annie Palmer, our guest this week. She's a journalist who writes about Amazon and e-commerce for CNBC, and she's been covering some of the stories we're going to be talking about today. Hi, Annie, and welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. And the initial story that caught our attention that you've been covering was the story of the appeal of Amazon's victory in the union battle or the union vote at its Bessemer, Alabama Fulfillment Center. This is an interesting one, and it looks like there's a mailbox that's going to be perhaps factoring into the National Labor Relations Board's decision in this case. Can you just catch us up on what's been happening? Because I think a lot of folks thought that this whole union battle was over. Yeah, that's right. So we've been... uh locked in these this hearing, this federal labor hearing for about three weeks now and have been just kind of dissecting dozens of objections that were filed by the union that led the campaign in Bessemer. These objections ranging really quite uh, a lot of different topics, but the one that's really kind of emerged through these weeks of hearings is this discussion around a mailbox that was located on site at the Bessemer facility in which employees, this was a mail-in election, so they submitted their ballots through this mailbox outside the facility. And why it's become so central to the union's argument that Amazon engaged in improper conduct is that, you know, they're basically arguing that the mailbox created an impression of surveillance, but also that Amazon was somehow involved in the collecting and counting of the mailed-in ballots. And so, yeah, just over the past few weeks, we've been hearing from Amazon managers, at one point, uh, U.S. Postal Service executives from D.C. who appeared at this this Zoom hearing with reporters, you know, watching on, um, just testifying to How did this mailbox appear and how could it have impacted the outcome of the election? Annie, as I understand it, Amazon put up a tent and essentially made this look and kind of feel like an official polling location. Is that the implication of of what's going on here and thereby somehow could have influenced the outcome by 
making it a place where people and employees who are more likely to vote against the union would feel comfortable voting there and it'd be easier for them to vote there? Or is this implication that Amazon actually perhaps even influenced individual votes in this way? Where Where is the, the union headed with this allegation? Yeah, so I think it's important to add that at the onset of the election, Amazon had argued pretty strongly for an in-person election. And the idea there, I believe, is that they would have greater oversight over how, how it went down. So the NLRB roundly rejected that and roundly rejected Amazon's original request back in January to have a mailbox be put on the site. So when this mailbox appeared, that raised a lot of a lot of questions. And then add on top of that, just like you said, they erected a a tent around the mailbox with some what appeared to be electioneering messaging that said, speak for yourself, vote here. And then in addition to that, they sent out loads of communications to employees during the election saying, mail your mail in your ballot by March 1st and use our mailbox on our site to do that. And so the union is essentially arguing that by Amazon asserting that the mailbox was the place to mail your ballot, a lot of workers ended up mailing their ballots through this mailbox. And through the course of testimony over the past few weeks, we've learned that there's been all this debate over the compartments in the mailbox, who had access to them, who could access the outgoing mail and who could access the incoming mail. So that's why we heard from postal service executives and other folks who worked at the, at the warehouse about who in fact had access. And so basically I think where the union is headed is saying that it's possible that Amazon was able to access the ballots that were going through that mailbox and therefore could have been potentially tampering with the results of the election. I think the bar that's easier to prove is just that the mailbox created this impression through the electioneering and through the fact that it was at the warehouse that Amazon was somehow involved in conducting the election. I saw a picture of this mailbox and it looks like my residential mailbox at my cul-de-sac outside of Los Angeles. I, I was so taken aback by the way this thing looks. You know, I had in my mind this was going to be a big industrial sized mailbox that could support 10,000 votes in it. But I guess my next question, Annie, is if I'm an, a warehouse worker and I fill up my ballot, do I put a stamp on there? Do I put a return address on there? How would Amazon, if they could open the back of that thing and, and access, was there any discussions during the hearing about could Amazon identify who left the vote on the ballot? So that's where it gets a little bit tricky because the ballots were mailed in two envelopes. There was the envelope on the outside that had the voter's name on it. And then inside that, that envelope, there was an envelope that was unnamed, which contained the ballot. And the ballot doesn't have a name on it. It just says, you know, how you're voting. And so they probably couldn't trace how certain employees voted. Yet at the same time, we have heard testimony of um, Amazon managers walking the floors of the warehouse and talking to people and asking them, hey, did you mail in your ballot? And employees obviously had the choice of whether they'd want to respond. But there's this idea that, you know, when you're being talked to by a manager, you feel that pressure to kind of engage. There was an individual who testified who basically said he didn't ask them how they voted, but a few of them may have indicated how they voted. And that was then indicated on a clipboard. And the, basically whatever he wrote down on that clipboard was then turned into Amazon at the end of the day. So I think that's a harder bar to prove 
by the union. And, and also it's up to the NLRB at the end of the day to make that kind of like qualitative judgment of whether that evidence, you know, kind of rose to that bar. And they may not need and it. They may not need it. Exactly. The, and this, and the, that was it's what, dirty enough the way they did it with the tent and everything and, right, and, and right. this sort, and sort of intimidation to, and confusion. Right. Yeah. That's what I meant to point out earlier is I talked to a former um, NLRB chairman during the Obama administration last week. And he said basically to me that the mailbox is damning because it's not a question of who saw it. And, you know, was it coercive? It was a question of whether the company had access to the ballots. And the testimony that we've heard so far, you know, strongly suggests that they had access to this mailbox. And so that may be enough for the uh, NLRB regional director who will come down with the decision to say, you know what, (laughs) the laboratory conditions, as they like to say, were not clean. And therefore, we're going to order a rerun election at some point. Interesting. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. So the remedy, if they find that this was uh, somehow impacting the outcome of the vote, would be a new election? Is that what it would be? That's right. So yes. So if the NLRB regional director finds that the election was tainted in some way, they could say, uh, we're going to order a new election at this warehouse. And the wrinkle is that Amazon (laughs) then has the ability to appeal that decision, which would mean that it would then go to the NLRB board in Washington, who would then likely go through, it, it would further it would set in, in motion a further protracted litigation period where it could take months for this board in Washington to reach a conclusion. At the same time, Amazon could also say, you know, we think we have enough support in, in our favor at this warehouse that we'll just cut a deal with the union and agree to a rerun election. And the idea there would be that they feel confident enough that employees at the at this warehouse don't want a union, you know, and then... In that case, a rerun election would be moot and we'd be back to where we started. So one of the interesting things that you've reported, Annie, is that Dave Clark, who was previously Amazon's logistics chief and is now the head of their worldwide consumer business, was personally interested in making sure that this mailbox appeared. And this struck me as fascinating in part because we know Jeff Bezos, historically over the years, has been very hands-on with some nitty-gritty things that you would not necessarily expect someone at his level of the company to be hands-on with. And here you have Dave Clark, who is one of the top executives at the company and becoming even more influential with Jeff Bezos transitioning out of the CEO spot and Andy Jassy coming into the CEO spot and sort of opening things up underneath for uh, Dave Clark and others to rise up. You have him sort of following the Bezos model here. Although maybe you could say that this was Clark's approach all along based on some of the the past things that he's done, just in terms of the specific nitty gritty things he's been involved in. Why was he so interested in this mailbox and what does it say? That I don't really know. All that we know from the testimony that we heard is that according to emails that a, a senior logistics manager sent to the postal service, basically they were trying to grease the gears and get this moving and, and get this this mailbox set up on at the facility. But in those emails, this manager said, this is a highly visible Dave Clark initiative was the words that that they used. So we don't we we didn't learn in the testimony, you know, to what degree he was actually involved in this initiative, whether that was just kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, a threat. Was it a threat or was he actually 
sending an order down saying, let's get this mailbox set up. I don't I don't really know. And other folks who testified at the hearing said that they never actually communicated with Dave Clark directly. So we don't really truly know the full scope of his involvement in this. But I think to your point, you know, looking at the Bezos playbook around these types of issues there are cases where the topest of the, the the highest executives at Amazon will get involved if they have to. Um, so, yeah, to what degree was he involved? I don't know, but it's an interesting it's an interesting wrinkle. <laughs> Look, I, I think if he was involved and it was very important to Dave Clark, whether someone was name dropping or not, we will maybe we'll never know. Um, I have to believe, Todd. That if Dave Clark wants that mailbox with that big ugly tent around it um, in the parking lot of the Amazon warehouse, he's got to believe this is going to help their cause against the union vote. I mean, just connecting the dots here. To this point, it would not be beyond the realm of possibility that a high-ranking Amazon executive would get into the nuances at one mailbox, at one fulfillment center if it was about the union issue, thinking of how important the union issue and specifically the pivotal moment that this Bessemer vote represented. We know how Amazon feels about unions. You can look at previous coverage of other union drives that have taken place and the extents to which, and GeekWire has reported this, many outlets have reported this, the extents to which they will go to you know, stamp out union initiatives. And, you know, they've even got an internal security team. This came out last spring when they were trying to hire private investigators to basically keep tabs on activist groups and union sentiment within their ranks. So all that is to say, we know how Amazon views these unions. And so clearly they felt threatened enough that this campaign potentially had legs. I don't know, but it wouldn't be absolutely shocking if the S team had a meeting about this very issue. I should point out that Amazon put out a couple of statements on these topics. They said, quote, despite heavy campaigning from union officials, policymakers, and even some media outlets, our employees overwhelmingly rejected the union's representation. Rather than accepting that choice, the union seems determined to continue misrepresenting the facts in order to drive its own agenda. And on the topic of the mailbox in particular, their statement is, Quote, as we've said from the start, this mailbox was secure and Amazon had no access to outgoing mail. Similar to any other mailbox that serves businesses, we had access only to a single incoming mailbox where we received mail addressed to the building. Those are the official statements from Amazon. That's right. Yeah, they so far they've they've said, you know, this mailbox, they've really kind of stood by the statement that this mailbox was set up to make voting easier for the employees and um and of course, they've been uh, their their lawyers have been uh, making that case throughout the testimony. When you think about the numbers here, though, is this just sort of minutia, or is this meaningful? Uh, the union vote in Bessemer was so important. If it goes back, wouldn't union supporters just sort of be up against the same odds? How do you sort that out, either of you? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately. The Bessemer vote was really important. And these hearings, while they are very protracted and they've been it's been weeks of hours of testimony every day, I do think ultimately it is important for all the other employees that are thinking about doing the same thing at their facility and for employees that have 
faced any kind of anti-union tactics that Amazon has, has used at their own sites. These hearings are important to kind of get on the record sort of what happened during this election, because while it ultimately wasn't successful, this, again, is all important historical context to better understand how Amazon views workers unionizing in its ranks. I mean, again, that's kind of been the white whale for many of the major labor unions in the U.S. is to organize these workers. So while ultimately we may have a rerun election and that might fail again, I think a lot of activists see this as an important fight no matter what. And so the <laughs> extra fa- extra documentation and facts that we get through testimony that shows that potentially Dave Clark was involved is just kind of like the sugar on top that we get more information than we might not otherwise get through these hearings. I keep asking myself the question, we did a podcast about about the union vote before it actually went down, Todd. And we said, you know, this was a, or, or maybe we did it, was it post the election? It was over. It was a, we talked about it being a, a lose-lose for the worker, right? Because the worker, even though Amazon's saying $15 an hour is great for you, the physical pressure put on those individual workers is not really a $15 an hour job. It's much more equivalent to heavy equipment manufacturing jobs, which are in the 20s and higher uh, hourly rates. So that, that was number one. It was sort of a, a win-lose, we thought, for Amazon because sure, they won the vote, but boy, they lost some, they lost some of that, um, uh, I, I don't want to say customer obsess, but they lost some of that shine. Boy, here's a great company that I love so much because I've got this great Prime app and my Echo device and all these great things and they're changing the world. Boy, they're really using some dirty, nasty tactics to keep these folks down who are working hard to help them make more money, billions more. And so I think that that was a win-lose. And then for the union, it was sort of a sort of a lose-win. We've got a situation where now Amazon is being, frankly, embarrassed in these hearings. And you know, good for you, Annie, for going and sitting through these things. I can't imagine that this is particularly riveting with the exception of <laughs> with the exception of some of these great moments where there's like, wait, there's a mailbox key. Why is there a residential mailbox sitting in front of the warehouse? <laughs> I, I can't get, I get, I can't get past that one. Or even the worker that testified from his bed after being in the hospital that he saw a security guard opening the mailbox, which by the way, I was told that that worker wasn't even really supposed to testify that at the end of this testimony, he was asked, oh, well, do you have anything else to share? And he said, oh, yes, I saw security guards opening the mailbox. Um, just this so, one small thing I needed to just add, a small right? Anecdote, you know, <laughs> some minor. And, and, and weren't there cases where Amazon's counsel needed to object, but he had bandwidth issues and couldn't actually <laughs> object? So these folks were just rambling on and on with more and more <laughs> potentially damaging testimony against Amazon. I mean, this is just, yeah. this is made yeah. for 2020, 2021, right? Totally, yeah. I'm curious, talk about nitty gritty. I'm curious what platform are they using to stream the <laughs> It's all been it's all been Zoom. So they've they've got a Zoom government contract. If only it was Amazon Chime, it would have been <laughs> properly distributed to the nearby data center so as to optimize the streaming capacity. Yeah. That that would be the, the AWS comment on that inability, I'm sure. That's right. The, the last question that I have about this whole thing, again, lose win for the union. We've got another effort in Staten Island. I'd love to hear Annie's, if she's got any information on that. There's additional union efforts in Chicago. I mean, this is going to be a multi-front 
war, not to overuse the war terminology, but an, a, a multi-front war for Amazon, the more they're out in the public and the perception is that they're nasty to the average person, I think this hurts them on the customer side. I think people are going to start looking for alternatives. I don't know how many, but I, it's got to be bad PR for them overall. You're right. I think, um, you know, there, there are still lots and lots of ongoing actions that are taking place across the country. And particularly one that interests me is this effort to organize delivery drivers because these delivery drivers are, aren't even full employees of Amazon. They're, they're contracted delivery drivers. Um, and yet still you see, you know, folks like the Teamsters looking to organize these Amazon delivery drivers. So yeah, I think you're right. I think even though Bessemer was a difficult loss for the union. I think that uh, it hasn't deterred a lot of folks from continuing to keep, you know, trying to organize their facilities across the country. All right. Thanks for the recap, Annie. And I want to keep talking. Let's talk next about Prime Now and the big change that Amazon just announced in its speedy delivery service. That's coming up next. You're listening to GeekWire's Day 2 podcast about everything Amazon. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with Jason Boyce of Avenue 7 Media here on the Day 2 podcast from GeekWire. And our guest is Annie Palmer, a journalist who writes about Amazon and e-commerce for CNBC. Annie, another story that just popped up recently, you and I both covered this one, was Prime Now, Amazon's original speedy delivery service. And by the way, I cannot say that without thinking of Mr. McFeely. I'll, I'll just say it right now. <laughs> Speedy delivery. I, I, when, ever since I've been tempted to use it in headlines, leads, I have to pull myself back. I pull, I dial it in. I, I look for puns everywhere, and that's my big one. At any rate, Prime Now, this was the standalone service from Amazon, still is, that offers one and two hour delivery for Prime members. It was a big deal when it started because this concept of clicking on your screen or your, it was originally your app, and getting something almost instantaneously was very novel at the time that it launched I think yeah. back in 2014. And over time, you've seen that become so much more common, not one or two hours necessarily, but it's not uncommon in Seattle to place an order in the morning and expect to get it by one o'clock in the afternoon or place it at night and expect it to be on your doorstep before eight in the morning. And it really speaks this news that Amazon made, this move to the change and the real integration and the overall increase in delivery speeds. They will be retiring Prime Now as a standalone service by the end of the year and effectively folding it into Amazon.com, the site and app, and doing away with the Prime Now name altogether, as I understand it. Jason, this is part and parcel to what third-party sellers are facing. Annie, you've been covering this. What what does this mean? Yeah. So essentially it shows that Amazon is really trying to simplify their delivery offerings. You know, I think again, this is a change that appears to have been underway for quite a while before they announced it. You know, users of the Prime Now app were getting a push notification in the app for I think a few weeks now or maybe even longer, basically saying, hey, if you want to you know, enjoy fast delivery services, head on over to our, our main app or our main app website and do it there. So I think, yeah, I think this is really just a way to, for Amazon to make it that much easier for consumers to figure out, you know, where do I go if I want to get groceries sent to my doorstep in an hour or two? 
which, and before, you know, and for a while now, I think it's been a little bit disjointed in terms of which, which of Amazon's services do I use if I, if I want just that. And so by them moving it over to the main app and the main site, I think it'll just further simplify for customers. You know, if they want two hour delivery on a perishable item, it's much easier for them, for them to do that now. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree. I think that instead of Prime Now going away, everything will become Prime Now, essentially. <laughs> and you know, what, what, are the, what are the two moats that Amazon has with their business? Amazon Prime, 200 million Prime subscribers. I should say more than 200 million Prime subscribers, as Jeff Bezos pointed out in his last shareholder letter. And their logistics network, which is the fastest growing, they haven't taken their foot off the gas in terms of adding more square footage, adding more delivery drivers. And ultimately, I think they will... You know, we, we, they started off at Prime as two day. Now it's really one day in the majority of the country. And it's not out of the question for them to move to two hours. And then Amazon Pharmacy comes to mind too. I just, I just know that they're thinking this, right? You're going to go to the doctor. The doctor's going to write you a script. He's going to tap it into his computer. And the thing's going to be there at your house before you get there. You'll be bypassing the CVS or Walgreens. Sorry, CVS or Walgreens. But that's, that's where Amazon is heading so that everything is delivered in a matter of hours rather than days. Some of their competitors are already doing this. Like I just was talking to um, folks over at Instacart last week and they were saying we have on-demand delivery that can deliver your prescriptions to your doorstep in a few hours. So, you know, it, it would not shock me at all if we see Amazon continue to build out those offerings. I think that's kind of the way in which things are heading now is it's not really one or two days. While that's still definitely an important option and offering for a lot of these companies to have, the discussion is now moving towards what, you know, people like to call instant needs or on-demand delivery where you can get things in an hour even. And so Amazon is going to do whatever it takes to continue to stand out in that space. And whatever Prime subscribers tell them they they would like to have added onto the, that offering, Amazon's going to have. It's such a great point, Annie, about Instacart. If there's one thing we know about Amazon and what they pay attention to in competitors, because they say, oh, we don't pay attention to competitors. We only pay attention to the customer, right? And so for sure they pay attention to the competitors. It's fast growth rates, right? They're now paying attention much more to Shopify than maybe they did in the past. Instacart's another one super fast growth rates. They're doing things right. They're really making a name for themselves first in grocery, but it's a great point that you bring up about their fast delivery on the pharmacy side as well. That's that's good stuff. Everyone seems to be dabbling in this, this space, it feels like. You've got Postmates, DoorDash. Another one that keeps coming up over the last few months has been GoPuff, who kind of pitched themselves as like this on-demand delivery service for everything, you know, all, all the convenience items you might need. And I think that's also worth pointing out is, you know, Amazon has been in this for a long time and it didn't always work out. I mean, we've, it's not just Prime Now that has been kind of shifted around a little bit. We've also seen them shutter Prime Pantry last year um, or the beginning of this year rather. And then I think, you know, GeekWire reported as well that they're shifting their strategy around the go grocery location. So, you know, Amazon has kind of has their hands in a lot of different buckets as it relates to delivery and, and grocery and convenience items that, you know, I'm sure they've got another idea in the works that's going to shock us. Or 10. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> when I think about sellers, third-party sellers in particular, I would sit there and I think, well, it's kind of a blessing and a curse because on the one hand, through fulfillment by Amazon, they're able to plug into this prowess, whether it's 
Prime now folding into Amazon.com or just the general increase in delivery speeds. But on the other hand, the better Amazon gets at this, the more entrenched they are, the stickier they are, the difficult they are to give up. You know, you can't quit them. And the more so, they can raise their fees on you. It's, it's a double-edged sword. It, it really is a double-edged sword. And, you know, there's so many interesting behaviors uh, that Amazon puts out to those sellers that gets them more and more and more entrenched. And what do you, what, what do, you do? What do you do as a seller when, you know, 80% of your business is coming from Amazon? What do you tell Amazon? No, I don't agree to you raising my fees on FBA. I'm going to start fulfilling from my own warehouse. And then, you know, you make two mistakes in a delivery and Amazon suspends you. For, for, for shipping goods out of your own warehouse. So then you have to go back to FBA and pay the higher fees. So yeah, I mean, we talk about this all the time. This is an antitrust thing. Um, they're absolutely gaining more and more market power by the day. And you know, the, the, the more power they gain, the more willing they'll, they are to sort of you know, continue the squeeze, the seller squeeze. So the story that we covered most recently on day two was this story of Empow and Aki being essentially delisted in many ways from Amazon. And Jason, I know you spotted a, a follow-up article, a commentary by Shira Ovide of the New York Times. And one particular sentence in her follow-up caught your attention, Jason, and I wanted to get your take on it. it it's so interesting. So her her specific comment, Todd, was... Uh, smaller sellers get the benefit of the doubt. Not so much. I don't see that at all. And you know, at our agency, we have brand new sellers, we have big, you know, eight-figure, nine-figure sellers, and we have everyone in between. And um, you know, there was this story out in Recode, and we asked this question on the day two podcast on our last episode. We had we had Jeff Cohen on from Seller Labs, who's great and understands reviews really well. And I, I'm, and I, I think I can't remember if it was you or I who asked the question, Todd, but we asked. Jeff, do you think Amazon took these sellers down because, because it was the right thing to do? Or do you think they took these sellers down because they got embarrassed and this, this story became public? And then a recode story came out and said, well, not so fast. The FTC was pressuring them in at least one of the cases. I can't remember if it was Aki or, or Empow to take, to take them down. And so Shira followed up with another story from the New York Times adding to this, this, this story that Recode launched saying, you know, perhaps Amazon wasn't really just doing the right thing and that they're, they're giving smaller uh, sellers the benefit of the doubt. Smaller sellers are sacrificial lambs. They're absolutely the guinea pig when it comes to new bots, takedowns, new policy enforcement. At least that's what I see day in and day out. The smaller the seller, if you, don't, if you haven't received a link from somebody at Amazon to set up your seller account and you're not a, quote, trusted account, and you're doing any monkey business at all, they will lop your head off without so much as a second thought. But what's fascinating about both Shearer's story and the Recode story, Todd, is if you're a big seller, they're going to look the other way unless the FTC comes knocking or unless a big public story about a data leak comes out where they don't have an option but to enforce it. And that's kind of messed up. And just to be specific about this, the one sentence that caught your attention and that you disagree with, it was, Amazon presumably keeps a closer watch on big merchants than it does on fly-by-night companies that don't sell much. What you're saying is it's the opposite. Yeah, I think they keep a bigger eye on the big merchant sales numbers 
and the fees they're collecting from them, but they're not keeping a sharper eye, or at least they're not enforcing their TOS, as they call it, the terms of service when it comes to review. Everyone in the electronic space who's a third-party seller who's not giving away product for reviews knew that Impow was doing this. All you have to do is look at the number of orders compared to the number of reviews left, and those numbers are way out of whack. And so clearly Amazon knew this for a while. They knew it for a long time. And um, they took action. I was hopeful. I was hopeful in that last podcast, Todd, that they took action because it was the right thing to do. Not so sure that was the case anymore. You know, to Jason's point, in terms of how frequent smaller sellers are facing suspensions and other sorts of kinds of, you know, um, actions on behalf of Amazon's teams. I spoke to, you know, a seller the other day who said, who, who told me that sellers actually take out suspension insurance, which is a plan that they pay into on an annual basis so that if they are suspended by Amazon, you know, wrongfully or, or just suspended in general, you know, rightfully, they can rely on this insurance that they pay for to get them through that period in which their account may be down for, you know, maybe days or weeks at a time. And I just thought that was kind of shocking because it shows the lengths to which um, sellers are fearful or concerned that, you know, they may lose their account at any moment's notice. Jason, is that true? It, it is true. And I was just remembering, I wish that insurance was available oh. back when I was a big seller because I could have used it a couple of times when I was suspended as a seller. Um, but, you could but be a yeah. spokesperson for one of those insurance companies. I should be, right? <laughs> I'm available if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. It's probably worth a reminder for folks who are maybe just starting to listen to the day two podcast, the way that I connected with Jason originally. I think you and Annie have been talking for quite a while, longer than we knew each other. But the way I connected with you originally, Jason, was I spotted your name in the footnotes of the U.S. House Antitrust Subcommittee report where they told your story of being, what's the verb you would use? You were Amazoned, I guess, multiple times. <laughs> yeah, multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> through multiple phases. They competed with you, did other things that made it difficult to, to operate. And ultimately you gave up and became what you are today. Yeah. Well, look, I sold out and became what I am today and I'm, you know, let us <laughs> together, Todd. So I made all the right decisions. I'm convinced of it. <laughs> but, but you now help third-party sellers. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, I've made every mistake you can make in the book and learn from it. And, um, and, and I know how that, I know how that Amazon game works. I started selling in 2002, became a top 200 seller, did it for 17 years. And now we help brands with their own private label have that same, uh, sort of measure of success on the on the Amazon platform. And I tell folks this all the time. There used to be a time when you could hire an Amazon person in your office and manage it. But I mean, geez, we've got seven different departments now managing seven different verticals that are absolutely necessary in order to win. This is not a set it and forget it platform, right? This requires constant vigilance, 24-7, 365. And um, it is, it's really changed dramatically. And so it absolutely makes sense that there's an insurance policy. That I, I, although I imagine... Maybe after the Empow story came out, those policy premiums are going to go up. And, and maybe those insurance folks, if they're not checking for review fraud, they should. They should you know, tap into fakespot.com to see if their, uh, their clients are doing any review manipulation. But yeah, it's a real thing. Like I said, when 70, 80%, even half of your business is coming from Amazon and it goes down, you're not making payroll that week or the following week. So it's, it's, it's you know, where there's a need, a business arises, right? Yeah. I mean, to your point, you know, there's basically cottage industries that have popped up um, 
in almost every facet of running a business on the marketplace. Like there's consultants for pretty much any, any issue, you know, there's attorneys even that dedicate an entire, all they do is just, is just uh, represent sellers who feel they've been, you know, wrongfully suspended or whatever, whatever issue there may be. So yeah, there's this entire industry that's arised out of this marketplace. So it's just kind of, kind of crazy to think about. (laughs) When one platform does half a trillion dollars in revenue in one calendar year, there's going to be a lot of extra industries pop up as a result of it. That's a really big business, really big business. Can you get some insurance against the potential extension of the NLRB hearing? (laughs) (laughs) Annie Palmer is a journalist who writes about Amazon and e-commerce for CNBC. Annie, what's the best way for people to follow your work? Sure. I'm, uh, as with every other reporter, I'm on Twitter at Annie R. Palmer. And uh, of course, if you like to see my work, I'm at CNBC.com. This was great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Jason Boyce is co-author of The Amazon Jungle and founder and CEO of Avenue 7 Media, an agency that works with third-party retailers on Amazon. Jason, I'm really glad once again you brought somebody with tons of valuable information and insight into our orbit. Thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Annie. Thanks, guys. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Don't forget to leave us a rating and a review in your favorite podcast app. That's GeekWire's day two podcast about everything Amazon. And we will talk to you next time.